Hello, and welcome to Next Reads, a podcast where we read the first chapter of a young adult or middle grade book to help you figure out what to read next. This podcast might contain language or situations some listeners might find offensive or unsettling. The North Liberty Library does not necessarily endorse any author's views, but it does support the freedom of speech and the freedom to read. Now, on to the show. I'm your host, Erin, Youth and Teen Services Librarian at the North Liberty Library. My pronouns are she and her. Welcome, listeners. So today I'm going to read from the book called Hope Punk by Preston Norton. And it's a part of a series of books that James Patterson is responsible for. And I'm going to read the front flap for you so you have an idea of what this is about before I start the first chapter. Growing up in a conservative Christian household isn't easy for rock-obsessed Hope Cassidy, who spent her whole life being told that the devil speaks through Led Zeppelin. But it's even worse for her sister Faith, who feels like she can't be honest about dating the record shop cashier Mavis. That is, until their younger sister hears word of their sinful utopia and outs Faith to their parents. Now Faith has no choice but to enter the Change Through Grace Conversion Center, or run away. Following Faith's disappearance, their family is suddenly broken. Hope feels the need to rebel. She gets a tattoo and tries singing through the hurt with her Janis Joplin-style voice. But when her longtime crush Danny comes out and is subsequently kicked out of his house, Hope can't stand by and let history repeat itself. Now living in Faith's room, Danny strikes up a friendship with Hope and a band. And their music just might be the answer to dethroning alt-right, Danny's twin brothers new hate-fueled band so there's kind of the setup and there's a nice little inscription to start the beginning says 245 that your walls may fall that your cages may crumble that we may rise from the ashes you've left stronger than ever before chapter one faith was here the graffiti wall had existed for as long as human thought or at least as far back as mom and dad had attended Sundance High. It had clearly been expanded upon in the two decades since. The thought was, if we let kids deface one wall as much as they want, they'll leave the rest of SHS property alone. There were, of course, certain prohibitions. No swears, no genitalia, no blasphemy. It was anyone's guess what a blasphemy looked like. But otherwise, free game. And it worked. I mean, There was the occasional 8675309 call for a good time, carved on the inside of a bathroom stall, but even those were relatively clean, content-wise. Maybe it was just me, but I thought the graffiti wall was high art. It was a mosaic of identity, generations on top of generations. Images and colors and emotions splashed together into a psychedelic, face-melting kaleidoscope. Words like doom and euphoria filled incredible amounts of space, painted like monuments. Phrases like, be someone, and don't wait, offered simple advice that had probably affected countless souls. There were images of staggering tree silhouettes with sprawling roots that wove into an invisible earth, black cats slinking by, birds soaring, an impressive Chinese dragon, red with gold spines and whiskers, winding in and around the graffiti like a ribbon, tying the whole thing together. At the very bottom corner, scribbled in thick black sharpie, practically faded, someone had written, Faith was here. It read like a metaphor, the power of past tense. Faith was here, but no longer. 
Unfortunately, Faith in this case was a very real person. I was there when she wrote it. I had joked about how tacky it looked next to everyone else's art. I wasn't trying to be mean. I was just joking. Faith had shrugged sheepishly and said, yeah, but my existence is all I have to offer. Looking back, now that she has left, these are the words that haunt me most. What a cruel way for the universe to show me how much her existence meant. I was born full of swear words. This was what I told people when they asked me what it was exactly that I started swearing like a character in South Park. They always seemed curious, considering I was born into the most blisteringly Christian family this side of the Black Hills. I certainly didn't start verbally swearing until maybe a month before my 16th birthday. But as far as my inner monologue was concerned, I felt like I was nothing but swear words. Swear words and this vast, consuming emptiness devouring me from the inside. I heard the word fuck once, and suddenly it was the only word in the English language that made any sense. I held on to it like a life preserver in the middle of an endless ocean. I'm not saying there was anything inherently meaningful about the F word, but sometimes, in a world that I completely failed to understand, it felt like the only word that understood me. All I really knew was that the God I had been taught to believe in since I was little had a real fucked up way of doing things, and I wasn't sure I believed in that holy shithead anymore. <laughs> and once you've allowed yourself to pull that spiritual rug out from beneath your feet, all equilibrium goes out the window. I was left reeling for balance in a world that didn't seem to make sense anymore. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me tell you about Faith. Faith was my older sister. Faith was my best friend. Faith was the coolest person I ever met. When I say coolest, I mean that in a more genuine, intimate sense of the word. Faith was a nerd and a total introvert weirdo. By some fake fashion magazine standard, she was like the exact opposite of cool. Outside of one-on-one -on -one conversations, she wasn't eloquent, she wasn't TV definition attractive, and her sense of style didn't extend beyond understanding the difference between shirts and pants. But she was gleefully, recklessly, 100% herself. And if that isn't cool, then fuck. I don't know what is. Faith's one true love was science fiction. She gobbled up all the subgenres. Hard sci-fi, soft sci-fi, apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, space opera, space western, dystopia, alien invasion, dying earth, Afrofuturism, steampunk, biopunk, nanopunk. There was seriously way too many punks. But her favorite was the granddaddy of the punk subgenres, cyberpunk. From books, Neuromancer, Snow Crash, to movies, Blade Runner, The Matrix, to anime and manga, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, Battle Angel Alita. She was hardcore for this shit, and that was just the classics. She had plenty of room for modern Netflix mindfucks, like Black Mirror or Altered Carbon. She loved stories with artificial intelligence, virtual realities, hackers, and megacorporations juxtaposed against a radical change in the social order. When I tried to pry into her obsession, she explained that at their core, these stories were about one person making a monumental difference. At their beating heart, these stories were about what it meant to be human. For as long as I can remember, our family used to go to this megachurch. Faith liked to call it MAGA-church, not a compliment. In Gillette, the next big city from our town, we were there every single Sunday. It was called Traditional Family of Christ, and it looked like a sports stadium and a rock concert got baptized, married, and had good old-fashioned marital sex. At the time, I didn't even realize how problematic the title was. 
but Faith would always nudge me in the side and whisper her commentary in my ear. Like when Pastor Rains instructed his congregation of thousands, filled to the rafters, to not do anything without first consulting the Lord in prayer. Because God forbid we learn to make rational, independent choices for ourselves, said Faith. Or when Pastor Fulco said that all good is the product of Jesus and that all evil is the product of Satan. It's a good thing the world is so black and white, said Faith. Can you imagine if there was a gray area? We'd be screwed. Or when Pastor Brighton said that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. It is flawless and incapable of error. Like when those kids call Elijah baldhead, so he curses them, and two bears come out of the woods and eat the little bastards. Second Kings 2, 23. This was tragically and hilariously her favorite scripture and probably the only one she could cite off the top of her head. Like, screw those kids. Male pattern baldness is serious. If you're wondering how I kept a straight face through all of this, I didn't. It almost always resulted in me snorting, barely stifling my laughter, and, when assailed by homicidal looks from both parents, pretending I was just so totally moved by the word of God, praise him, wipes away rapture-filled tear. When Pastor Rains went on an incredible rant about the eternal nature of gender and homosexuality being a direct attack on the family unit, that anything outside of this was unnatural and wrong, I expected her to have an entire comedy skit. These guys didn't get to go on crazy rants like this without some tasty riffing from Faith. But Faith was perfectly still, perfectly silent. She was like that the entire drive home. It wasn't until later that evening that Faith knocked on my bedroom door and peeked inside. Hey, she said. Hey, I said, you okay? Faith nodded her head, then shook her head. What's wrong? I asked. Faith stepped inside and shut the door behind her. Can I tell you something? You can tell me anything. I thought this was a given, but I scooted across the bed, tucked my legs in, and patted the open space in front of me. I even moved my favorite stuffed animal, Lofi, who was technically a plush loaf of bread with a smiley winky face, and placed him in my lap at attention. When we were in elementary school, Faith once told me that she watched the movie Flashdance at a friend's house, and Lofi and I had kept that secret thus far, and we intended to keep it to the grave. Faith sat on the edge of my bed, her hands balled tightly in her lap. She was staring at my wall. She couldn't even look at me. I'm lesbian, she said. She was 15 when she told me this. I was 13. What you have to understand is that we were essentially the Flanders family from The Simpsons. I had never met a real-life lesbian, at least not one who was publicly out. And the only famous queer woman I was consciously aware of was Kristen Stewart. So I wasn't deliberately being an ass when I said, what, like Kristen Stewart? Faith paused to consider this. I think she's bisexual, but yeah, I guess. I nodded slowly. I like Kristen Stewart. Faith started crying. Her face just completely broke apart. Whoa, hey, I said, panicking. I dropped Lofi, scooched forward on the bed, and hugged her. Hey, 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 I love you, okay? Thank you for telling me that. You're not going to tell everyone, are you? Do you want me to tell everyone, I asked. Faith shook her head violently. No, not yet. I think Mom would murder me. I wanted to tell her that Mom wouldn't murder her, but honestly, in my 13-year-old brain, I wasn't entirely sure that was accurate. 
So instead, I just hugged her tighter. Your secret is safe with me, safe as flash dance. Faith started crying even harder. When she finally hugged me, I thought I might snap in half. She hugged me like I was the only thing in the world she had to hold on to. Now that I think about it, I probably was. I don't remember that hug ever ending. That memory was pure hug, pure love. Faith and I were already close, but from that moment on, we were unbreakable. Our relationship was one of intimate understanding, sacred trust, and fierce loyalty. Because I knew about her sexuality, I felt the need to tell her my deepest, darkest secrets, which were honestly about as deep and dark as an Oprah cinnamon chai frappuccino with extra whipped cream. They consisted mostly of the fact that I was developing a deep, abiding, possibly sexual love for punk rock. I was also in love with a boy, but someone else was in on that secret. My name was Hope and her name was Faith, so obviously we had a little sister named Charity. I guess my parents lucked out, having three girls in a row. We were all cesarean sections, each of us spaced roughly two years apart, and the doctor made it explicitly clear you don't have more than three of those bad boys if you're keen on the miracle of life staying that way. Can you imagine if mom wasted that last c-section on a boy? Faith, Hope, and Charlie? What a disgrace. Bullet dodged. Charity and I used to be super close, the way that young children often are. The beautiful thing about being a kid is that boredom and the insatiable need to have fun 24-7 often superseded any differences you had. If Faith was the nerd and I was the wild child, by conservative Christian standards, Charity was the romantic. Eons before puberty, she loved to pick dandelions and wildflowers and make scraggly bouquets out of them. She'd hold Barbie and Ken wedding ceremonies. Sometimes she would even try to write love letters to Jesus, whom she legitimately wanted to marry. And I did all the shit with her. During the Barbie wedding ceremonies, I usually played Ken, who happened to be an FBI agent well-versed in the art of karate. When she, quote, wrote her love letters to Jesus, she usually recited while I transcribed. The deal was, if I played her games, she would play mine. And my favorite game was The Floor is Lava. You know the game. We would jump around the living room from furniture to furniture, and if you touched the floor, you were dead. We would play this until we broke something, or Charity's clumsy ass fell and hurt herself, or the most common endgame. Mom came in, saw us jumping on her West Elm Hamilton leather sofa, and had a full-blown conniption. It was great. This all makes Charity sound like a simple-minded rube, but she was weirdly a prodigy, at least when it came to key-based instruments. Charity was taking piano lessons before she even learned where babies came from. The story goes that she found Dad's old Minimoog synthesizer from his high school days when he was in a band called the Trash Cants. He had since cleaned up and found Jesus. And she taught herself a version of Moby's God Moving Over the Face of the Waters, which she had discovered on the internet and mistaken for a gospel song, although that's not to say that it was anything short of a spiritual experience for her. When mom found out, she had no moral choice but to take out a mortgage and purchase a proper piano. Because let's be honest, mom hated the mini Moog and everything it stood for. However, rather than becoming the next Sergei Rachmaninoff, which Charity seemed fully capable of, she opted to dedicate her keyboard skills to Jesus instead, playing both piano and organ for the church choir. The mini Moog was exiled to the attic. It was only recently, when she thought no one was listening, that she would get scandalous and tap out a little marshmallow or dead mouse on the old Steinway, or 
if she was feeling particularly ravey, lock herself in her bedroom, slip on a pair of fat noise-canceling headphones, hand-me-downs from yours truly, and get funky with whatever DAW, digital audio workstation, she could get her hands on. I shit you not, Charity was a closet electronica EDM junkie and an aspiring DJ, the sort who feels the need to have a giant robot helmet and a secret DJ identity, a la Daft Punk. But I wouldn't find this out until later, much later. I'm only telling you now so that you'll believe me when it does happen. Anyway, when Charity and I were still young and naive and in love with life, trading off things like sloppy makeovers and talking about boys for backyard parkour, there was this playground at City Park close to our house where I invented this new game called Wyoming Ninja Warrior. That was when I first laid eyes on Danny Roger. Charity was maybe seven years old at the time, meaning I must have been about nine and in the early throes of puberty because let me tell you what, hubba hubba. The concept of sexual attraction had never registered in my brain until that moment. He was the sexiest boy creature I had ever seen. During those summer months, he wore tank tops that exposed his long, ropey arms, and he smiled in this way that gave me a stomach ache, and I just wanted to, like, grab him. I didn't know what I wanted to do after the grabbing, probably explore the texture and absurd lankiness with my fingertips. But believe you me, the desire to grabby-grab was idolatrous, almost pagan. Danny also had a twin brother, Dylan. But Dylan was the whinier, more annoying version of an otherwise perfect model. They came to the park to play sports, all sports, literally any and every sport ever invented. And more often than not, I found myself losing Wyoming Ninja Warrior to charity because she was in the throes of a growth spurt, and I was too busy making googly eyes. When I informed charity that I was in love with the boy creature called Danny, she and I made low-key plans to marry the Danny and Dylan Roger package. (laughs) Charity now knew she wasn't allowed to marry the Messiah, and she hadn't yet discovered Calvin Harris, so she lowered her standards to Dylan. That way, we could move into the same house together, and our kids would be best friends, and we could all play the floor is lava together, and it would be great. Sometimes we squared away the details while hanging upside down from the monkey bars. I thought Charity was less in it for Dylan and more in it for me. Dad jokingly called electric guitar the devil's banjo, But I think it was one of those jokes that was actually serious, because in the Cassidy household, there were effectively only four music genres, country, gospel, classical, and show tunes. The funny thing was that, like Charity with the Mini Moog, it was his fault I wandered down this treacherous, sinful road of rock and roll. It all started a year after Faith came out to me. Mom, Faith, and Charity were away one Saturday morning for some women and girls only church activity. I think it involved arts and crafts, not important. What was important was that I had caught a nasty stomach flu and spent the previous night relocating my insides to my outsides. I barfed. So, no arts and crafts for me. Before they left, mom tucked me in bed, put a hot compress on my head for the concaving headache, and was even so kind as to put her favorite big mixing bowl by my bed so I could just roll over and vom should the need arise. No TV, mom instructed only sleeping. She didn't need to tell me twice. Last night's puke fest was the ab workout of a lifetime. I should have had a six pack at this point. If I even tried to sit up, I might have died. And so I lay there, drifting in and out of consciousness for the better part of an hour. It was around then that my actual dreams melted away into this fever dream reality, 
were the most rock and roll thing I had ever heard in my entire 14 baptized years on earth was blasting from the garage. I thought I was imagining it. It wasn't hard to see why. The sound was experimental, almost hallucinatory, like jazz on hard drugs. Drums chanted out shamanic rituals. A guitar-like sound drifted spectrally through walls and dimensions. The guitar sound was actually an electronic instrument called a theremin, I would later learn. The lead singer, meanwhile, was moaning like he was in the throes of sin. The culmination of the sound was a mountain of pure madness. I sat upright, even as my achy abdominal muscles screamed in existential terror. I crawled out of bed, draped a blanket around my shoulders like a shawl, wandered down the hall in a foggy daze. The music was definitely coming from the garage. As I drew near, the song's hallucinations reeled into a singular vision, the singer's voice. From his lyrics clear down to the fabric of his voice, this dude was pure sex. The guitars, real guitars, riffed and rolled like storm clouds filled with thunder and noise. The lead singer screamed, my, 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 my. Possessive? Yes. Hot? You better believe it. I reached the door leading from the house into the garage. I could feel the rock and roll thrumming against its surface. Silently, I peeled the door open. The sound and fury washed over me like flood water. The old stereo was front and center on dad's workshop counter. The garage door was closed and the hood of the Honda CRV was open. Dad was leaning over the exposed engine, singing into the monkey wrench in his hand, faintly so as not to ruin it with his tone deaf pitch. Shake for me, girl, said Dad. I want to be your backdoor man. Dad, I said. Dad might as well have been caught in the very act of adultery. He was a big man, with a big square face and a haircut that only seemed to emphasize the bigness and squareness. So when he whipped upright, he hit his cinderblock skull on the hood of the car with such force that the hood rod was knocked loose and the hood slammed shut. It only barely missed his meatloaf fingers. Ow! Dad and the lead singer screamed in stunning unison. I gasped. Dad, are you okay? Dad offered a wincing smile and gave a crooked thumbs up. He seemed more concerned with the devil's banjo blasting from his stereo than any possible head injury he might have incurred. Yeah, I'm, he stammered, rubbing his head. Let me just, he couldn't seem to finish the thought. So he shuffled off to his workshop stereo and fumbled to shut the music off. When it ended, the absence was like a hole. I liked it, I said. Dad stopped, looked at me. His face was a paradigm of pure confusion. What was that? I asked. Uh, said Dad. Led Zeppelin? Sweet Jesus, even the name was sexy. It's cool, I said. The wall of awkwardness separating me from Dad slowly crumbled. I saw the validation in the curl of his smile, in the way he nodded. Yeah, it is cool, isn't it? Dad glanced left, then right. His hand brushed across the wood surface of the counter, grabbing a CD case. It's off their second album, songs called Whole Lot of Love. Can you play me more of it? As the father of three daughters, let alone husband of the most religious woman in all Wyoming, I'm sure dad never thought this day would come. For a second, he seemed to question whether this was real life or some sort of trap, but it was only a second. The next instant, he was grinning with abandon. 
We plopped down on the floor, leaning against the workshop counter with the stereo between us. Track by track, Dad took me on a stroll through rock and roll history. This is what I learned. One, that sexy man on vocals was Robert Plant. Not to worship false idols or anything, but Dad called him the god of rock and roll, and I was inclined to agree. Two, John Bonham was, bar none, the greatest drummer of all time. Case in point, Moby Dick. The entire track was instrumental and basically a showcase for his drumming soloing madness. Fucking madness, I say. It made Ahab look sane by comparison. It made that whale look like a goldfish. Three, Jimmy Page was samurai and the guitar was his katana. He slayed with poetry and honor. Four, last but not least, John Paul Jones, primarily on bass and keyboards, but he was also known to dabble on the mandolin, violin, cello, banjo, guitar, sitar, ukulele, harp, auto harp, koto, clavinet, mellotron, and the recorder, to name a few. At the end of the day, my favorite song was Ramble On, not only because Page achieved violin-like zen on his Les Paul, or because JPJ's rolling bass line was as smooth as ice cream, or because, according to legend, Bonham was banging on a plastic trash can, but because the song also served as damning evidence that these four grown-ass men were total nerds. The entire thing was a lyrical tribute to the Lord of the Rings. Robert Plant went so far as to name drop Mordor and Gollum. The line between nerdum and badassery was left in a fiery guitar screeching haze. By the end of it, I was dumbfounded. Wow, I said. Right? Said Dad. That was epic. Right? How come you never listen to this around the house? Even as I said it, I knew the answer. I knew Dad knew that I knew. I guess I was just perplexed and frustrated that secrets were necessary for coexistence. That sometimes the key to acceptance was to not be your true self. Oh, you know, said Dad meanderingly. Your mother, she's a very spiritual woman. She's sensitive to things that interfere with her relationship with God. I knew that when I married her. Sometimes when you love someone, you have to make sacrifices for them. I knew what he was trying to say, and I didn't not agree with it, not completely. It was about selflessness, but this conversation was about more than just rock and roll. It was about faith. It was about who she was, and it went so much deeper than music preferences. But doesn't she love you? I said. Shouldn't she have to make sacrifices for you too? She does. She gave me three beautiful daughters, and every day she helps me raise you. It's more than I could ever ask for. I bit my lip and hugged Dad. He hugged me back. The sort of enfolding, bear-like embrace that makes hard things endurable. The unfairness was still there, but it dissolved in the moment. Love had the power to do that sometimes. Just so you know, said Dad, I'm not saying you're not allowed to listen to whatever music you want to. I stared at Dad. Just so long as your mother doesn't find out, he said. And it has a guitar solo that melts faces. He winked. My eyes widened with a rush of criminal adrenaline. There's this record store downtown, he said. It's been there since I was a kid. It's been through different owners and name changes since then, but it's basically the same store. That's where I discovered all my favorite bands. Last I checked, they still have headphones where you can listen to stuff before you buy it. Dad tilted left and removed the wallet from his back pocket. When you get over this bug, have faith walk you down there sometime. Find a piece of music that speaks to your soul. 
He slipped out a $20 bill, crisp as an autumn leaf, and handed it to me. Well, he tried to. I didn't grab it. I stared at that shit like drug money. Dad, I said, deadly serious. Are you telling me it's okay to keep secrets from mom? Dad chuckled. I think there are two types of secrets, Hope. Secrets that hurt people and secrets that protect people. I'd like to think this is the sort that protects. Nothing strengthens the soul like music that speaks to it, especially when you find it on your own. I think there's power in that. He gently nudged the $20 bill closer. I know Dad didn't know Faith's secret. I know that. But somehow, I felt like he did. Like he was telling me that everything was going to be okay. It was now called Ralph Records, new and used CD and vinyl. Faith took me without question, partly because we were best friends, but also maybe partly because of Mavis Mackley, the super cool, pink-haired, 16-year-old girl who Faith was acutely aware worked there. According to legend, she played the drums. The moment I saw Faith eyeing her like candy, or worse, like some dorky manga, I knew what was up. Birds and bees and shit. I didn't want a cock block or whatever the lesbian equivalent was, so I nonchalantly perused, left Faith to mentally recite pickup lines or whatever. That's when I saw it. The Strokes' debut album, Is This It? The cover was a hypnotic alien atlas of yellow and blue. I later learned that it was an image of subatomic particles tracks in a bubble chamber. It sounds naive to suggest that it was love at first sight, that I knew this album was the one before I even listened to the damn thing. All I'm saying is that something karmic was at work here. It was a used copy, and just as Dad promised, all used copies were unsealed and available to sample on various players throughout the store. So I popped it in, clamped a pair of fat noise-canceling headphones over my unpierced virgin ears, and entered the voice of Julian Casablancas and his title track, Is This It? It was a spiritual awakening. I was not okay. I had been infected by a sound, and I needed more of it, stat. By the second track, The Modern Age, I was ready to fork over my music spending money. By last night, I was what you would call obsessed. By the end of Take It or Leave It, I was ready to get a tattoo, smoke a cigarette, start a garage band, and move to New York City. I was a changed girl, a changed woman. Over the space of 40 or so minutes, I had accumulated a wealth of life experiences. I was no longer Hope Cassidy. I was someone new, someone cooler, someone who seriously needed to get her fucking ears pierced already. I used to be afraid of needles, but I was pretty sure I could take it now. Apparently, I wasn't the only one who had discovered themselves at Ralph Records, new and used CD and vinyl. Faith and Mavis really hit it off. Ralph Records became a regular trip for us. I was on a conquest to feed an insatiable hunger for the sound that infected me, and Faith was falling in love. I guess I was falling in love too, but you know what I mean. It was different. We were walking back from Ralph Records one particularly sunny afternoon, and in typical Faith fashion, she was lost in the stratosphere of her thoughts. I just figured she was thinking about Mavis, or maybe the plot to the modern Netflix mindfuck Russian doll normal stuff, at least until she turned to look at me and point-blank asked me, have you ever thought about writing a book? I had not, in fact, ever thought about writing a book. It was times like this when I realized what completely different people Faith and I were. I thought plenty of times about starting a rock band, but first I would probably have to learn how to read music or play a badass instrument. 
Musically speaking, I guess you could say I was sort of illiterate. Nah, I said. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Faith nodded emphatically. Of course she had. What sort of book? Well, it has to be sci-fi, obviously, said Faith, but also maybe a love story. Faith was trying not to smile, which of course made her smile even more than she normally would if she just let herself smile, which in turn caused me to smile, and you know how that situation goes. It was a smiling crisis. Stop it, said Faith. Stop what, I said. I'm just smiling. You're the one in love. I'm not in love. Neither of us looked like we believed her for a second. Faith was smiling so much it hurt just to look at her. Besides, it's not just a love story, said Faith. I think at its core, thematically speaking, the story will be about identity. I nodded like I understood what any of that meant, which I didn't, not contextually anyway. Faith seemed to notice that she had lost me, so she added, the main character's name is Andromeda. Finally, a bone I could fucking chew on. Oh, that's a cool name. It is, isn't it? Andromeda, I repeated, testing the name on my tongue. Andromeda. I think Andromeda has to run away from home, said Faith. Andromeda. Me. Wait, what? I blinked and looked at Faith. For the first time in this entire conversation, she wasn't smiling. Why? I said, probably a little too seriously. She just has to, said Faith, matching my seriousness, because she's going to be trapped forever if she doesn't. Trapped? She's afraid of what will happen if she doesn't run away, because literally every possibility feels like the scariest thing ever. I opened my mouth, but the right thing to say eluded me. What were we even talking about anymore? This conversation was slipping rapidly away from me. She's afraid of people finding out who she really is. And what then, said Faith? What if something really bad happens to her? But, I said, what if everyone just learns to love and accept her for who she is? That's not going to happen, said Faith. The edge to her voice was so sharp, I felt the cut. The blood pooling at the wound. I stopped walking. Faith took several steps past me before she stopped and turned around. I was weeping silently. What are we talking about, I said. Faith frowned. We're just talking about your book, right? I said. It's just a book, right? Oh, hope. Now Faith's eyes were watering. She took three tremendous strides and wrapped her long arms around me. It's just a book. I hugged her back, ferociously, possessively. I refused to let her go until I had some sort of assurance she would never leave me. That's when Faith chose to hit me, possibly the strangest and coolest assortment of words strung together I had ever heard in my life. Andromeda and tanks through space and time, said Faith. Huh? I said, sniffing violently. That's the name of my book. Whoa, I sniffed again. That's a really cool name. Heck yeah, it is. There wasn't an inch of her that doubted it. I finally dared to let go of her. Tanks, huh? I said, forcing a weepy grin. Does she have pink hair? Oh my god, said Faith, pushing me away. You're the worst. Please go away. But she was smiling. That smile was all I needed. And that is the end of the chapter. I hope you found that chapter intriguing enough to check it out. If not, well, there's always another book just waiting to be discovered. 
please check the show notes for books with similar themes. I will be sure to put that in the description. And please join me next time for another Next Reads. Thanks. <laughs>